Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosli. It hasn't been smooth sailing in recent months for two Western democracies. After seemingly confirming reports that he asked a foreign power to dig up dirt on his potential 2020 rival, Joe Biden, President Trump this morning only heightened speculation that he tied the prospect of foreign aid to those requests. The actions taken to date by the president have seriously violated the Constitution. Only three other American presidents have faced impeachment proceedings this serious. Impeachment for that? Trump is now facing an impeachment inquiry in the House of Representatives. Turbulent day for Britain's embattled Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The UK Supreme Court ruled that Boris Johnson's decision to suspend Parliament in the run-up to the Brexit deadline was in fact unlawful. UK lawmakers have once again thrown the Brexit process into chaos. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was trying to do what his predecessor failed three times to achieve get parliamentary support for his Brexit deal. The eyes to the right, 322. The nose to the left, 306. So the eyes... Meanwhile, in the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson has suffered a tumultuous start to his term as prime minister. I will not negotiate a delay with the EU. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The prime minister must now comply with the law. What does this volatility mean for the United States and the UK as both countries head towards elections within the next year? Hello. Hi. Hi, Hi, Matt. Matthew Goodwin joins me to discuss that question. He is professor of politics and international relations at the University of Kent and an associate fellow at Chatham House. He is the co-author of National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. He joins me from our studio in New York. The United Kingdom has been mired in the last three and a half years in a state of uncertainty and dysfunction over Brexit. And here in the United States, President Trump is facing an impeachment inquiry and now refuses to cooperate with the House of Representatives, which is definitely setting the stage for a constitutional crisis. A lot of your research focuses on political volatility. Can you talk to us about what you mean by that term? Sure. So by political volatility, I'm mainly referring to the extent to which politics is becoming increasingly unpredictable and the growing willingness of voters to change their political allegiances. You know, one of the remarkable similarities now, uh, I think, in, in across the US and the UK, is that both of these democracies are trying to reply to populism. Uh, and in the US, you've seen the impeachment issue. Uh, in the UK, you've seen the Supreme Court decision against Boris Johnson and, 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 and the con- constant, never-ending constitutional discussion over Brexit. But, but, but what strikes me is that reply is judicial, it's technocratic, it's about process. And I think what concerns me more than anything today is that we're not even getting close to replying to the actual drivers of populism that are deeper, that are about ideas, ideology, identity. Instead, this very surface level, very short term. And it's just an opening observation that perhaps in our discussion today, I think, you know, there's this lingering question above the US, UK and Europe, which is what does a decent, good, meaningful reply to populism look like? 
What do you think it looks like? <laughs> okay, well, let's get straight into it. I think there's going to be, I think there's an interesting question which has presented itself through Trump and Brexit and what's going on in Europe. Firstly, it's, it's where has liberalism gone wrong, both economically and socially, right? That's the first question. I think economically, you know, we all accept that what what's given liberalism its immense power is its marriage with capitalism. And we we all accept now that the capitalist system has got, got a number of things wrong with it, that it, you know, it's it's not dealt with with inequality well enough. It hasn't been transparent, it's been crony capitalism, uh and 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 we've got some really systemic problems there. But also social liberalism, some would argue, has gone too far and has made conservatives and and also authoritarian voters feel profoundly anxious. So I think the first question is, you know, what are liberals willing to concede? And you know that to me is where the interesting discussion is right now, which is yeah, you know impeaching Trump and trying to you know defuse Brexit in the courts. I mean, this, I'm not saying that is not important. It's very important, and and it, and and you know the process issues are important. But actually, the more intriguing conversation is you know, those bigger questions about how do you get to a meaningful reply on populism. It's interesting that you point out that the liberals are struggling to respond to populism in a book that you co-authored last year with Roger Eatwell, National Populism. Um, you talk about this new populist movement. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? So national populism is a movement that we argue is an ideology in its own right. We don't view populism just as a style that can attach itself to anything. We think it it, it actually draws on a pretty specific and, and, and entrenched body of thought that national populists seek to prioritise the interests and the culture of the, uh, na- uh, the nation state, the national community, against elites who they argue are self-serving, corrupt and neglectful of the true common pure people. Uh, and so national populism, which you know, has a very long uh, and rich history, uh, is certainly as old as democracy itself. It will be with us long after uh, you, know, you and I are gone. It, it, it's, it's deeply embedded in, in democratic life. But it's now got a new salience because a lot of the trends that are sweeping through our societies uh, and democracies and economies are making the national populist message incredibly relevant to a large uh, number of voters, particularly, not exclusively, but particularly blue-collar workers, the lower middle class, the self-employed and conservatives, who feel that a number of things now have gone fundamentally wrong, that the pace and scale of migration are both too great, that they are losing out relative to other groups in society, that their political systems are no longer giving them voice, they're no longer representative uh, of key groups who have, who have decamped to populists. And also, I think, fundamentally, that the economic system uh, that we currently have is, is giving people good reason to feel that they are being left behind. You mentioned migrants as being a point of concern for this national populist movement. And that's certainly this anti-immigrant rhetoric you're seeing from both Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and a lot of other populists that have, have come to power in Europe. And you have seen a sharp rise in hate crimes against Jews, Muslims, people of color, how viable is this politics of division as a long-term strategy for them? Well, 
I would take a step back and 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 you know, firstly, what we've got sort of raging in the US, UK, and elsewhere is is this debate about when you look at all of these populist movements, is this primarily a phenomenon rooted in economic insecurity or cultural insecurity? And I just I just wanted to start there because I think that's a really important point that we take head on in that. If you lean a bit to the left, you tend to say actually this is all economic insecurity, and it's about you know it's about jobs, wages, and scapegoating immigrants that do contribute to the economy, and it's mainly within that sort of Marx Marxist view of what's of how political behaviour operates. If instead perhaps you sort of lean a little bit more to the right, you tend to say actually that uh, economic hardship is really just a, a driver of populism on the left, that actually when you look at national populists like Trump and Brexit and, and, and what's happening in Europe, really the primary driver is is culture. And and economics might still be important, but it's, it's playing a secondary uh, uh, role. So I would think of it as cultural angst over the pace and scale, scale of demographic change. That's in the driving seat, but economic... Insecurity is in a passenger seat, right? Uh, and if we want to explain populism, we have to accept, firstly, I think certainly what we argue in the book, we have to accept that three decades of research in the social sciences is pretty overwhelming, that cultural insecurity is paramount. Now, that is linked directly to immigration. It's also linked to the role of Islam in Western democracies. It's also linked to just simply the pace of social and demographic change. Part of that is about racism, but not all of it is about racism. One of the things that we're seeing in Europe, which I find quite interesting, we've now got two studies that have shown that quite a large number of people who are voting for these movements are actually very liberal in terms of LGBT issues, very supportive of same-sex marriage, very supportive of expanding rights for uh, LGBT uh, communities, but are very anxious over migration, and in particular the issue of Islam, feeling that that is potentially a challenge to some of the earlier gains within liberalism. So we're seeing things within these electorates that don't sit easily within the narrative that this is just racism and this is just old school xenophobia, you know, get it out of here. Uh, so I do think we need to be a little bit more nuanced in our discussion. On the hate crimes point, look, I mean, <clears throat> there's, we had a similar debate after the vote for Brexit. And the one thing I would say there is that liberals tend to forget their achievements. And what I mean by that is in this very short space of time in the US, about 50 years, you've seen dramatic changes in public attitudes towards things like interracial marriage. In the 1950s, about 90% of people disapproved. Today, about 90% of people approve. If you look at the UK, we've had a consistent decline in racial prejudice. And since the vote for Brexit, we've actually got a lot of evidence now to suggest that people are more positive about immigration. And indeed, in the US too, you can see the liberal end of the spectrum in particular becoming more positive to migration and uh, um, intergroup relationships since Trump. And I think that's really interesting because that does actually challenge some of the more alarmist catastrophizing that has gone on over the last three years, that actually what we are witnessing is a sort of rapid descent 
into a kind of apocalyptic, you know, racist art, you know, scenario. Uh, I actually think that uh, that it's not quite as 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 bleak as some of our commentators would have us suggest. We've got would suggest we've got some very real challenges. I'm not at all under under. Uh, I'm not playing that down, but we do have a lot of positive trends that are kicking in. You know, if you look at generational breakdowns in attitudes to towards these issues. My students, for example, who were born, my first year students were born in 2001, just do not see issues like immigration as being a concern, right? Very, very different outlook than, say, the uh, the silent generation or the greatest generation. So there's a lot of good stuff that's going on, I think, that we need to also remember. So your students who were born in 2001, there is this sense that they're not part of this national populism and that it's more older, the older generation, the greatest generation, as you just mentioned. But you you mentioned in your book you don't necessarily agree with that, that this is not something that's going to pass when older people pass on. I was just going to bring that in, which is you're absolutely right, because it's the educational divide that overlays that. And that's the really interesting thing. So my students are going to university. But if you look at what we're seeing in in Europe, I mean, if you look at the US too, you look at 40... Three percent of white millennials voted for Trump. Uh, if you look at Marine Le Pen in France, she did very well among young women, 18 to 24-year-old women. When you find younger voters flocking to these parties, it's often non-degree holding young people, people that have not gone through the higher education system. And the thing, the point about angry old white men, which is a sort of narrative that a lot of people have latched onto. You know, take, for example, Brexit. We've had a really interesting debate about, well, if we had a second referendum now, would Remain win? Because all, you know, a lot of Brexit voters have, how can I say this diplomatically, have slipped over the horizon, uh, you know, to be replaced by some new generations of liberal post-millennials. I think the jury's out on that debate, right? I think the jury's out because it's very tempting it's very and i include myself in this camp it's very seductive to buy into the idea that we're on a sort of linear journey to a sort of liberal future that we just it's you know politics is just a waiting game just wait for the awkward people to die is basically the argument actually some of the life cycle effects that we see in studies would suggest that generally speaking we do all become a little bit more conservative as we age I think it's, I think the road, I think the journey's going to be bumpier than that I, than that narrative would have us believe. You mentioned Brexit, so I'd love to dive into that. Parliament in the United Kingdom denied Boris Johnson the ability to call a general election before October 31st, which is the Brexit deadline. But it's inevitable that Prime Minister Johnson will need to go to the British public for a mandate in the near future. What are his chances? To understand Brexit, you have to understand that this was the first moment in British political history when a majority of people outside of Parliament formally asked for something that a majority of people inside Parliament didn't want to give. That is the foundation of Brexit. Brexit was always destined to bring us to a political and a constitutional crisis. On top of that is the fact that Parliament has responded generally very poorly to Brexit. That will play to Boris Johnson's election strategy, which is now to frame Parliament, the courts, MPs and parts of the media, the establishment, in quotations, as the problem, the Brexit blockers. 
The people at home know that this parliament will keep delaying, it will keep sabotaging the negotiations because they don't want a deal. Mr Speaker, the truth is that members opposite are living in a fantasy world. In order to win a convincing majority, he needs to, to take half of the vote that is currently going to the populist Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage, who is an ally of Donald Trump, is holding about 12% of the national vote even today. And Nigel Farage is saying, I don't want to deal with the EU, I just want to leave under no deal. If Boris Johnson gets half of that vote on top of what he's already got, you're looking at a very big conservative majority. There is what I would call the nightmare scenario, which is that we have that election, we don't get a majority on either side, and we get another hung parliament, which is no majority, continued paralysis, zero room for manoeuvre, and we end up in this sort of you know, gridlock over Brexit. It's probably at that point that Parliament will will throw the question back to voters and we'll, we'll end up having to have a second referendum simply to break that deadlock in the House of Commons. You're starting to see in the United Kingdom, which has been essentially a two-party system like we have here in the United States, and you pointed out that voters are abandoning those party loyalties. And you could have a scenario where either the Lib Dems come out in front and either the Conservatives and the Labour Party is weakened. What happens to British governance in that scenario? Well, I think there are two fascinating things that are on the table. One is, as you, as you rightly say, one of the world's most stable two-party systems has now imploded into a four-party race. Labour and the Conservatives, the two dominant parties, the anti-Brexit Liberal Democrats, whose recent slogan was bollocks to Brexit, and the pro-Brexit Brexit Party. So one of the ironies of Britain voting to leave the European Union is that actually its politics is quickly becoming more European in that a two-party system is making way for multi-party politics, fragmentation and resurgent populism, all of the things that the Germans and the Italians and the Swedes and the Dutch would look at and say, well, gee, British politics looks a lot like continental European politics all of a sudden. But the second interesting thing that you're alluding to is what I would call the reverse 1922 scenario. And remember, in 1922, that was the first election when the Labour Party, connecting with the working classes, leapfrogged over the Liberal Party and became the number two party in the two-party system. Because prior to Labour and the Conservatives, it was the Liberals and the Conservatives. They were the two dominant parties. Are we on the cusp of the Liberal Democrats leapfrogging over Labour to become the number two party in the two-party system? As Labour, which is really struggling amid Brexit, it's adopted an, a very confusing position whereby it's saying it wants to negotiate a deal with the EU, but then at the next election call for a second referendum at which it will campaign to remain, in which it will be campaigning against the deal that it's negotiated with the European Union. So Labour's coalition is looking at this and is confused. In fact, 66% of all voters this week we saw in the opinion polls say Labour's position on Brexit is, and I quote, a mystery to me. So what you found is that Remain voters have looked at Labour and said, no thanks, they've gone over to the Liberal Democrats. And a lot of working class Brexit voters, historically within the Labour camp, remember 60% of Labour seats ended up voting to leave the European Union in 2016. 
some of those working class Labour leavers have gone over to Nigel Farage's populist party or they've gone over to the Conservatives. And so this has left Labour with this sort of existential question, which is, well, in 1922, we, we knew what we stood for. We stood for working class representation and the defence of workers' rights. And in that economic um, debate, there was a very clear, defined place for a Labour party. But in the new era of politics, where it's all about value divides and identity-related issues like Brexit, how can the Labour Party now retain, uphold, maintain a clearly defined space within the party system? And, you know, without sounding too dramatic, perhaps, you know, there's no guarantee that political ideologies should last forever, and social democracy is facing a full-blown crisis, not just in the UK, but across Europe more generally. Johnson's Conservative Party has been torn apart. The new Prime Minister kicked out 21 lawmakers who ignored his pleas to support the government. Mr Speaker, I'm not standing at the next election and I am thus approaching the end of 37 years' service to this House, of which I have been proud and honoured beyond words to be a member. I'm truly very sad that it should end in this way. What's been interesting to watch with Boris Johnson and leading Brexit negotiations is that his conservative party has not stood behind him. And when you take a look at here politics in the United States, the GOP-led Senate has certainly fallen behind Donald Trump and given him unwavering support, particularly on these impeachment inquiries. To impeach any president over a phone call like this would be insane. But really, Mr. President, we know that House Democrats have been indulging their impeachment obsession for nearly three years now. So clearly this has been an ongoing project for House Democrats since practically the moment that Secretary Clinton lost the election. How do you account for that difference? I think one of the issues that we've seen within the Conservative Party is the centre-right struggling to reposition itself in a way that it speaks to the the new voters that it's been attracting since Brexit. Uh, In the aftermath of the referendum, one of the legacies of Theresa May's premiership, and of course Theresa May consistently promised Brexit means Brexit, is the Conservative electorate became more working class, became more concerned about immigration, became more pro-Brexit because a lot of people began to switch over from Labour or from Nigel Farage's party. And so that really left this party with with an electorate that was quite different from the electorate that David Cameron had. David Cameron was more of a liberal conservative. And Boris Johnson has picked up that baton and now he's really got to run with it. But of course... That in itself, and Brexit more generally, has alienated the more liberal elements of the Conservative Parliamentary Party that I don't think were were visible in the US. I think the US polarised a lot earlier than the UK did. And I think the Republican Party uh, machine was more prepared to give Donald Trump its loyalty and its discipline in exchange for electoral success than some of the more moderate conservative 
MPs were because they were partly not convinced that Brexit would really work out and they certainly hadn't yet seen the electoral dividends that, that you know, they didn't certainly didn't come in 2017 when Theresa May failed to get a majority. Instead, she got a hung parliament. And currently, there is no guarantee that Brexit will deliver Boris Johnson a large majority, even if I, for example, would think that that he could get one. Um, and so I think that that was certainly one point of disconnect. I think I think more generally, the other thing just to keep in mind, conservative parties in general are facing a deeper existential question which is, you know, a lot of these parties historically have been pretty comfortable with big business and capitalism, but are now attracting large numbers of voters that are instinctively protectionist and interventionist, uh, who want government to do more to regulate big business and to regulate capitalism. And I think Trump has tapped into that. And I think Boris Johnson has tapped into that. I think Nigel Farage partly has tapped into that. And so a lot of the Thatcherites and the Reaganites, perhaps, are now quietly aware of the fact that they might not have the tools and the language that's required to kind of connect with this new, these new, this new generation of conservative voters. And so perhaps they're willing to give these leaders a little bit of free reign um, in that they perhaps feel that they're sort of, you know, um, a little bit out of their depth. Matthew, early on in our conversation, we talked about responses to national populism. Are there responses at a local level where people can address institutions or civil society can respond to national populism? I think actually there is a lot that could be done. I just don't think we're currently talking about some of those things. We could have had a really interesting debate post-2016 about what kinds of reforms would be effective at addressing some of the legitimate grievances that national populist voters share. Right. So we could have talked about, you know, how do we tackle regional inequality, right, where a lot of people outside the cities uh, have good reason to feel why they feel that they're being left behind. Uh, what about educational inequality uh, that we do have some pretty glaring uh, levels of inequality across schools and universities that I'll come back to? What about economic uh, disparities? Uh, and what about institutions that are not sufficiently representative, not only political institutions, but also media institutions? We could have talked about a lot of these things after 2016. And instead, we sort of fell into this debate about can we find the Wizard of Oz, right? Can we find the person who's responsible for causing these awkward, uncomfortable political shocks? And is that person Cambridge Analytica? Is that person, you know, is it Putin? Is it Dominic Cummings in Britain? Is it, you know, who is the evil mastermind effectively, right? And there are some really important things that we need to think about when it comes to electoral integrity and how we run elections. But I, I personally feel that we've really so far lost uh, the opportunity that we had, which was to get into a much more interesting debate about how do we reform uh, the settlement in a way that deals with some of these grievances. One local thing that I think would, would really make a difference is actually around education. And I'll give you a real world example. Take the Brexit vote. If if you look at the percentage of high schools in London that are classified as high performing, right? London voted remain 60%. Um, it's about 70% of, of high schools are classified as high performing. Now, 
Look at the percentage of high-performing schools in a town like Blackpool or Hartlepool in northern England and two towns that voted 60 or 70 percent to leave the European Union. Uh, the, the percentage is zero. There are no high-performing high schools in those areas. The kids that go to those schools face what I would call a double whammy. They're coming from usually families and backgrounds that instinctively uh, automatically put them on the sort of wrong side of of of, uh, of life life's chances, but also they're then facing communities that on average uh, have very low levels of social mobility. So it becomes almost impossible to climb up uh, and get out of that situation. You know, it's not surprising to me that some of these areas, for example, on the coast of England, gave 70% of the vote to leave the European Union when a lot of those areas are basically still in the 1970s or 1980s when it comes to economic development. We just haven't bothered to talk about really any of that stuff. In fact, it was really awkward because a couple of months ago, the only person who was talking about that was Nigel Farage, uh, who came out with a number of policy pledges to tackle regional inequality, saying, you know, well, let's let's slash taxes for businesses that agree to set up in some of these towns. Boris Johnson then took some of those policies and said, OK, the Conservative Party are going to run on the, this issue of regional inequality. But there's an example of actually, you know, it's a populist that are putting forward the policy proposals to deal with the communities that we haven't talked about because we're so obsessed with finding the Wizard of Oz that's kind of made this awkward moment arise in the first place. And to me, that is a little example of how the debate has gone fundamentally wrong. Matthew, we normally end each episode by asking our guests this question, what gives you hope? But maybe I should edit that to ask, is there any hope? Oh, absolutely. The first thing to say is we now know a lot more about politics, voting behavior, political psychology than we knew three or four years ago. The problem that I think we've got is actually not in terms of the evidence base, but is in terms of politics and media. I mean, the national conversation just hasn't moved on. We have an exclusion bias in our political and media systems, whereby the very same groups who are now voting for populist parties are also the same groups that have been gradually marginalized in the policy making process and in the media. So, you know, none of this stuff I think should have been a surprise, but 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 what what has been surprising is just the complete failure to follow that up with serious reform. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for having me. That was Matthew Goodwin, professor of politics and international relations at the University of Kent. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced by Kasia Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunham.